Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 26, Deuteronomy chapter 21. Well, today we're going to begin uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21. And this chapter begins with a very odd ritual that, that Jewish rabbis and ancient Hebrew sages have had a hard time explaining. And Christian scholars usually don't even bother to try. Um, and we're going to explore that ritual. And we're going to see what sense we can make out of it. Now this chapter, 21 of Deuteronomy, is really divided into two parts. Verses 1 through 9 discusses this, this problem of an unknown assailant who murders someone. Right? And then the remainder that begins, remainder of, uh, starting with verse 10, begins with a four chapter section that deals with several miscellaneous laws for Israel. Now the key to understanding this first part, these first few verses of chapter 21 is that it revolves around the subject of blood guilt. So let's read chapter 21 together, but we're only going to read the first nine verses. First nine verses of chapter 21 of Deuteronomy, page 219 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. If in the land Adonai your God is giving you to possess, a murder victim is found lying in the countryside, and the perpetrator of the murderer is not known, then your leaders and judges are to go out and measure the distance between it and the surrounding towns. After it has been determined which town is the closest, the leaders of that town are to take a young female cow that has never been put to work or yoked for use as a draft animal. The leaders of that town are to bring the heifer down to a wadi with a stream in it that never dries up to a place that um, is neither plowed nor sown and they are to break the cow's neck there in the wadi. Then the Kohanim, who are Levites, are to approach. For Adonai your God has chosen them to serve him and to pronounce blessings in the name of Adonai. They will decide the outcome of every dispute and matter involving violence. All the leaders of the town nearest the murder victim are to wash their hands over the cow whose neck was broken in the body. Then they're to speak up and say, This blood was not shed by our hands, nor have we seen who did it. Adonai, forgive your people Israel, whom you redeemed. Do not allow innocent blood to be shed among your people Israel, and they will be forgiven this bloodshed. Thus you will banish the shedding of innocent blood from among you by doing what Adonai sees as right. Now, the typical approach to this chapter by scholars and teachers is to focus on trying to make meaning out of each of the, the ritual elements involved in this mysterious breaking the neck of a heifer, female cow, that's done in response to the problem of an unsolved murder being committed in this local community. Now certainly we will also look at those elements. However, the much larger subject that we'll begin with today deals with the terribly serious negative spiritual effect that unsolved murder 
has upon the town closest to the place where the victim's body was found, and even more correctly, how this affects all of Israel. Now the problem is that the sin of blood guilt, or better, the condition or status of of bearing, of having blood guilt, has been laid upon Israel as a result of this unsolved murder. Now let's talk about blood and blood guilt for a little while. Because believers, especially Western cultural believers, know very little about what blood guilt is and why blood is so important in God's system of justice and jurisprudence. In a nutshell, blood guilt is a serious condition of defilement and sin that's brought upon a person who violates any of God's laws concerning blood. Now, I'd like to begin by offering a rather sweeping statement that I hope by the end of the day I will have explained in sufficient depth to give you a better perspective on on what is really a touchy subject. Blood lies at the center of God's justice system in the way that a fulcrum lies at the center of a teeter-totter. As it swings fully one direction, there's one effect, and as it swings the other direction, there's an opposite effect. On one end of the spectrum, the misuse of blood is the cause for the Lord seeking retribution from a man. But on the other end, the proper use of blood is the remedy for the blood crime. Kind of ironic. Now, as Americans living in a carefully sanitized society, we know almost nothing about the necessity and role and centrality of blood in the scriptures because it offends our ears, it causes us to avert our eyes, and it turns our stomachs merely to talk about it any more than to sing a few Christian ditties about our Savior's blood that makes us white as snow. Yet as we've studied Torah, we find that the Bible has this fascination with blood. And at the same time, holds the value and necessity of blood in the highest regard. Now as Christians, we have scores of songs that celebrate and lament the precious blood of Jesus. Non-believers, particularly atheists, like to point out what they regard as this gruesome and barbaric thread of bloodletting and blood spilling that runs through from Genesis through Revelation. Christians tend to avoid the Old Testament largely because of all the bloodletting at the same and at the same time somehow sort of mentally minimize the role of blood in the New Testament, and especially in the book of Revelation. When one studies the Bible carefully, we find that blood is the main required element to make covenants, as well as to atone for trespasses. 
It is forbidden to eat, and it's forbidden to take the blood, the life of an innocent person. Blood causes defilement on the one hand, and it's the supreme purifier on the other. For the ancient Hebrews, and for most other ancient cultures as well, blood was central and indispensable in worship. The Bible wastes no time in bringing us to the subject of blood because in the third chapter of Genesis, the Lord's own hand brings about the first recorded death in history when he kills an animal and he uses its skin to cover Adam and Hava's nakedness. Why did God kill an innocent animal in order to provide clothing when there were other possibilities like leaves or how about wool? Because from this point forward, the case will be made that only blood can atone for sins against the Father. So God had a choice. He could take the life of the criminals, Adam and Eve, or he could provide a substitute and accept that substitute's life, that substitute's blood, as both reparation and atonement for those criminals' sins. Now, another God principle concerning blood is also presented very early on in the scriptures. Organic life that is filled with blood is different than organic life that exists without blood. That is, animal life is wholly different than plant life. Plant life, though, though valuable, is of lesser value in God's eyes than animal life. Plant life can be indeed offered to God for thanks and as an, an offerer of, of, of first fruits. But never can plant life atone for sin. And this is demonstrated in that when Adam and Eve felt shame, they used, they at least attempted to use, plant life, fig leaves to cover themselves. From a physical, rational point of view, those fig leaves worked perfectly fine. And their role is clothing. So why did God replace those fig leaves with animal skins? God didn't find those fig leaf garments unacceptable because they offended his fashion sensibility. And he didn't think that animal skins were more durable. Rather, you see, it was that the shame that Adam and Eve felt as a result of their guilt and as a result of their guilt, they were trespassing against the Lord. And the trespassing against the Lord can only be paid for with blood, never by plant life. Therefore, the Lord had Adam and Eve wear the result of their offense. Over their physical nakedness, the physical remains of that innocent animal whose blood was taken to atone and pay for their sin. 
the blood of the animal spiritually satisfied God's demand for justice. Now that's heavy. But even though the sinful act was certainly paid for, the entire nature of Adam and Hava was now infected with sin. Okay? They had broken God's one and only commandment to them. Don't eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was it. They had a one law Torah. And they broke it. Adam and Eve inherently knew that their sin nature had to be covered. They tried to do it with plant life. God said that's not sufficient. Only blood can cover sin. Of course, Adam and Eve weren't consciously thinking in terms of sin. They only knew they felt shame. They thought it had to be because of their physical nakedness. So they sought a physical remedy. Cover it up. Blood is physical, of course. And all flesh requires blood to exist. But spiritual beings like angels and cherubim and even Satan and his demons, they don't require blood in order to exist. Even so, physical blood does have a spiritual effect. And it is this spiritual effect that matters to God and therefore really ought to matter to us. The Bible uses a term to describe the ritual taking of the life of an animal as a substitute for the death that is rightly due the human who has trespassed against God. And that term is sacrifice. I just mentioned that early on in the Bible, the blood principle was established, that life with blood is distinct from life that exists without blood, animal life versus plant life. And we find just as early on that mankind, while recognizing the need to sacrifice to God, would usually rather do that in a way that each man prefers than according to God's principles. Thus, we have the example of Havel and Cain, Abel and Cain, who are told to bring a sacrifice to God. And Abel brings an animal, and Cain brings produce. So the produce is, of course, rejected, because this is apparently an offering that involves atonement. So plant life is not acceptable for that purpose. This rule so infuriates Cain that he decides to kill his brother Abel, and thus we have the first recorded murder. Let me put this in another sense. We have the first unlawful killing of a human by another human. The Bible also calls this act of murder the taking of blood. It's just synonymous, one for the other. So we now have another principle about blood that's been established. The unlawful unjust killing of a human being creates blood guilt upon the perpetrator. And blood guilt is so serious that it can only be satisfied by the blood of the guilty party as reparation. 
Blood guilt is such an extreme defilement of the person who committed the crime that it causes instant separation between that person and God. Now, to be clear, there are other sins involving blood that can also cause blood guilt, and one of them is for a human to ingest blood of any kind. We find later on in the Bible that it wasn't permissible until the time of Noah, after the great flood, to take the life of an animal for food. Up to then, the only authorized source of food was plants. In other words, up until the time of the great flood for a man to kill an animal and eat it was a crime against blood. A crime against God's laws concerning blood, which therefore incurred blood guilt. And out of this also came the prohibition against eating blood, which is different than eating meat. Eating blood means to either directly drink the blood of an animal or to kill an animal by strangulation or some other means that doesn't permit its blood to drain out and then you eat its flesh. Or it can mean to use blood as an ingredient in food. So then, simplistically speaking, blood guilt arises when a person violates any of the Lord's laws regarding blood. From the eating of it, to the unjust killing of a human, to the misuse of it, or the neglect to use it in a ritual procedure. The story of Cain and Abel, though, gives us a strong hint of another very negative aspect of blood guilt. Blood guilt defiles not only the perpetrator, but the land on which it occurred. It even defiles the community of people within which it occurred. Listen to Genesis 4 where it talks about one of the unintended results of the murder of Abel. And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on this earth. Here we have perhaps the most well-known biblical case of blood guilt. And the result is that the land itself has been affected. It's not that Abel's blood necessarily touched the soil, but we do know that it did. That wasn't necessarily the issue, even though it did. And so the contact between Abel's blood and the dirt caused that dirt to become, uh, become contaminated with a curse. Rather, you see, the guilt on the soil resulted from its proximity to the act of murder. Okay. It produced a negative spiritual effect. Blood guilt brought with it both a physical and a spiritual consequence. This murder had the spiritual effect of cursing the ground. Because the land bore the effect of the blood guilt that was committed upon it. Thus causing the physical result that the land would, would degrade. It would not produce crops as well or as easy. 
All right, as it did before this blood guilt occurred. Now, I cannot stress enough, this is not some ancient superstition recorded in the Bible. If the laws of blood, follow me, if the laws of blood were nothing but the products of men's fertile imaginations, then Yeshua's sacrifice was totally unnecessary. So please understand that while we might find these principles of blood and blood guilt strange, they are still, still fully in effect. Now I have the deepest regret that those of us in Messiah's church who are responsible to teach you about this principle of blood have instead chosen to take the more genteel approach and to simply ignore speaking the truth about the terrible consequences of blood guilt that pile up on our shoulders hour by hour. Now, I'd like to remedy that. And we're going to talk more about that in a little bit. But with that understanding, let's, let's continue here in Deuteronomy 21 and dissect those first nine verses. The one and only case that is being discussed here has to do with someone discovering a murder victim, but no one knows who's committed this act. The assumption is that since the killer has not been identified, then he can't be punished according to the law, which is that he be executed. Now notice that the issue is not about how to try to find the killer and bring him to justice. It's another matter. Okay. Rather, it's about what to do about the very serious problem of the blood guilt that now rests upon the land and upon the people of the local community. Notice that this case is further defined as having discovered the body out in the open. Okay? The corpse was in a field. Maybe it was alongside of a road. Technically, this does not cover what to do in a situation where somebody was found dead inside of a, of a city or a village. Okay. However, since there is nothing in the Torah that specifically addresses that nuance, right, rabbis and sages have assumed that certain portions of this law ought to be applied to an unsolved killing that took place inside of a town. Now, verse 2 speaks of elders and magistrates. Actually, the Hebrew word used there is shofet, judges, who are to come to where this victim has been discovered and then begin a legal procedure. And since this law envisions that era when Israel is settled in the land of Canaan and the land has been divided up into 12 territories, one for each of the 12 tribes, then these governmental officials that's being spoken of here, these elders and judges, are of course the ones who preside over matters in their own territory. So if the crime occurs within the territory of Judah, then it would be the elders and judges who are members of the tribe of Judah who would officiate over the matter. Well, the first job is for them to carefully measure the distance from the location of the body to the nearby towns and determine which town was closest to the murder scene. Great care has to be taken because whichever town is closest, they will be assigned the blood guilt brought about by the crime. Now let that sink in for a minute. Because this is not some procedure that Hebrew men thought up. 
This is the procedure that the Lord God has created. Now, notice how real and vital is the principle that Yehovah created human government to administer his laws on earth and that their authority to determine where the blood guilt lies is completely valid in his eyes. These governmental officials are being counted upon to determine as God's earthly agents which community is going to be held responsible to deal with the blood guilt caused by this unsolved murder. The town that was nearest not only bore the guilt, they were responsible to purge the guilt, to atone for it. If they didn't do this, they remained in their blood guilt before the Lord. Now, the ritual procedure to absolve this blood guilt begins in verse 3, and it is that the elders of the town locate the nearest the town located nearest to the crime scene. And they're to provide a heifer that's never been used for field work or any kind of work purpose in general, and they're to bring that heifer to a nearby wadi and there in the wadi break its neck. Now, a wadi is a riverbed, one that's usually dry part of the year and, and has flowing water at other times. But the instruction about this wadi here is a little bit uncertain and you'll get different takes from different versions. Okay, The typical translation is that this must be a wadi that is overflowing or one that is flowing strongly. Now, this is an oxymoron in Israel because there are a few known wadis that flow strongly at predictable times. It's very rare at least all right, in modern days. So the logical question is, since the ceremony must be done nearby the murder victim's body, in local proximity to the designated village, and certainly within the confines of that tribal territory, what happens in the most usual case where there is no wadi that's strongly flowing? That's going to be the condition most of the time. Most new scholarship agrees that the translation that we see in our Bibles of the Hebrew word that is actually etan, all right, as overflowing or strongly flowing isn't correct. All right. In other contexts of scripture, the same word, etan, tends to indicate strong, like in the sense of hard. In the Bible, for instance, when it speaks of a king or even of the Lord reigning with a strong hand, a better translation for our 21st century sense of words would be a hard hand, unyielding. It means ruling without tolerance, unbending. Therefore, more likely, what's being referred to here and when bringing the heifer to a typical Israeli wadi, one that is unyielding, means that it's so rugged and rocky that it can't be cultivated and that it doesn't provide any useful water. Those who have been to Israel have seen this picture all over, particularly the southern part. The wadis are dry. By definition, that's a wadi. Right? And only occasionally do they have water in them, usually from the form of a flash flood. Now, 
You're going to find a line of scrub bushes and, and, and uh, acacias and Hebrew shittim trees along these wadis, but they're also rock-strewn, and the soil is generally just inorganic sand. If you ever try to remove the rocks to plant things, the next flash flood would just bring more rocks. If you planted a crop, the flash flood would destroy it in a few seconds. Not only that, the water that's present beneath a wadi is usually in the form of moist soil several feet down, and only occasionally is it ever even suitable for a well. So probably this is speaking about bringing the heifer to a place that cannot and will not be used to grow crops or to obtain water. It is there that the town's elders are to break this heifer's neck, thus killing it. Now let me point out a couple of things about this procedure. First of all, it's rather cruel. You don't just easily break the neck of a cow. The process would be pretty painful. Take a little time. Second, this method of ritual killing is spoken of in the book of Exodus, chapters 13 and 34, as the means to slaughter the firstborn of unclean animals. Animals that are, that due to their species are not suitable for sacrifice or they are disqualified for sacrificial use because maybe they're terribly imperfected. There is nothing about this heifer used in this ritual that would indicate that it wasn't suitable for ritual sacrifice or that it was in any way impure. So it's kind of a mystery there. Then during this ritual we see that the priests come forward and what their role is we really don't know. They appear to be there mainly just to officiate and assure that maybe the procedure is done properly. And this brings up a very important point. The killing of the heifer in response to the discovery of an anonymous murder victim is not a sacrifice. It's already been established by God that a sacrifice can only occur at the tabernacle later the temple, on holy ground. And of course, this particular ritual, procedure we're studying, can occur pretty much anywhere. Further, the priests, we find, don't do the killing. There is no altar. The animal's not even burned up with fire. Therefore, this is by no means a sacrifice. We shouldn't classify it as one. It's something else. Next is another curious aspect of this ritual. The elders of the town assigned with the blood guilt wash their hands with water over the body of this heifer and then they recite this declaration as outlined in verses 7 and 8. Now many Bible translators say that these words spoken by the elders are a vow to God, an oath to God, but I I don't think so. Not only is God's name not invoked, which is an absolute must in a vow, but the structure of the sentence doesn't employ the Hebrew participle im, I am, at the beginning of the sentence, which is what usually makes it a vow. In other words, with the I am included, the translation becomes I swear, so to speak. Without the I am, it's simply I declare, I say it. This verse in Deuteronomy 21 does not have the im, the I am. So we have no reason to conclude that what the elders pronounced was a vow or an oath. Another mysterious thing about this. 
Now this hand washing is probably a symbolic indication of the innocence of the elders in the whole matter and that they're telling the truth. They're saying they shouldn't bear the blood guilt because they weren't involved with the killing. They don't know the identity of the killer and they could not reasonably have anticipated it or prevented it. This hand washing was so common in its meaning in the ancient Middle East that this is almost certainly what it meant. Recall that a long time later, the meaning of that hand-washing gesture was still in existence as we read in the Gospel of Matthew of Pontius Pilate doing a similar thing in this kangaroo court convened to sentence Jesus to death, where as he washes his hands, he says to the crowd, I'm innocent of this man's blood. I mean, to this very day, it's a common saying almost everywhere in the world that we wash our hands of the matter. Which we're doing what? We're declaring our innocence. Well, now back to the town elder's declaration of innocence. Rather than a vow, what their statement amounts to more than anything else, really, is a prayer to God. A declaration that is not to God, that is not a vow, is by definition a prayer. In this prayer, the elders are directly asking the Lord, they're praying to the Lord, that they be absolved from this blood guilt caused by the death of the innocent person, the murder victim. See, here's the thing. Since this ritual procedure is not a sacrifice, it can't have any kind of atoning quality. Its purpose, then, is only one of illustration and demonstration for the people. But it is also a command from the Lord. And there must be obedience to it. The reality is that it was this prayer that was the key for forgiveness in this situation. It was the prayer. And the elders in this prayer lean on their redeemed status for absolution. It is quite literally in the same mold that every believer asks God for our forgiveness. We are redeemed. And our redeemed status gives us the right to ask our Father in prayer for forgiveness and mercy. The unredeemed have no such thing available to them. Now note the ending of the words of verse 8. And they will be absolved. They will be forgiven of their blood guilt. Now forgive me for repeating something I've, I've tried to emphasize many times. But invariably someone doesn't get it. Over and over again in the Torah, when the Lord lays out these, uh, these atoning ritual procedures, the sacrifices, the passage about them ends with the Lord saying, and they will be forgiven. Folks, this means what it says. These ritual sacrifices, and in our case today, a prayer, 
a sacrifice of prayer, okay, spoken with a ritual procedure that's not a sacrifice, brings actual, real, complete, unequivocal forgiveness. Not partial forgiveness. Not something like forgiveness. I've heard so many times preachers say that in the Old Testament sins were covered but they weren't forgiven. Okay, That's false. This issue about covered sins versus absolved or forgiven sins is a red herring. There is no such concept as a sin covered but not forgiven in the Bible. Old Testament or no? There, saying that a sin is covered is just a colloquialism, and it's simply a word chosen by a translator. Covered, absolved, forgiven, they all mean the same thing. They're all translating the same Hebrew word, uh, kippur or, or kafar. All right? And it carries the same weight and has the same effect. These Old Testament Hebrews who followed that sacrificial system were forgiven for their trespasses. They were forgiven for the acts of sin they committed fully. Is one is determined to stick with the word covered in the Old Testament, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with that, then there's utterly no basis to change the meaning to forgiven in the New. This switch is done to try and prove or disguise an agenda-driven doctrine of men. So then what did Messiah's sacrifice bring to the table that was different than what happened with all those animal sacrifices? Well, at the least, his sacrifice was capable of atoning for the things that the sacrificial system could not. His sacrifice could atone for a murderer. His sacrifice could atone for a repentant idolater. There exists no such thing within the sacrificial system as a ritual procedure to atone for a murderer or for an idolater. Do you know that? Such a person was simply permanently cut off from God. He was both physically executed and spiritually permanently separated from God. But if one truly confesses and repents and trusts Yeshua, your guilt, even for murder, can be atoned for. That said, you're not absolved from having your physical life taken to expiate the blood guilt. You do not escape earthly justice. Only your spiritual life is assured to continue. Further, the Levitical sacrificial system did not create a path by which a human could have his evil nature exchanged for a new holy one. The effect of this is that no human could ever find his way to heaven. Instead, in the Old Testament times, if he died in a righteous state under the laws of Torah, then his soul or his spirit went to a place that the Bible calls Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom was not heaven. 
God didn't live there. Because no man who has not had his nature exchanged for a new holy one can ever be pure enough to enter heaven. And the only way that can happen is if you trust Christ for that. True enough, the Olah and the Mincha sacrifices did deal with the sinful nature of men to the extent that the sacrifice allowed a man to be in communication with God and at peace with him. But these did not actually cleanse a man's unclean nature. Christ's sacrifice paved the way for a man's natural sinful spirit, his nature, to be exchanged for a holy spirit, a new and holy nature. And with this new holy nature, we can stand before God in his heaven. And of course, there was necessarily sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice under the Levitical sacrificial system. Every new day required new sacrifices for the nation of Israel. Every new occurrence of sin required an additional atoning ritual. However, there was but one single sacrifice by Yeshua of himself that satisfied a multitude of various sacrifices within the sacrificial system. Plus, his sacrifice acted in a way that additional sacrifices aren't needed should you sin again. Lastly, his sacrifice could, generally speaking, atone for intentional high-handed sins while the sacrificial system had no such provision. Now, I remind those who have heard this from me before, that the word unintentional has concerns unintentional sins as opposed to intentional isn't precisely in all its aspects the same way as we think of it in our modern vocabulary. Okay, It's similar, but there's important differences. Okay, Well, those were the major differences between what the sacrifice of Yeshua did in contrast to the sacrifices of bulls and sheep. But the complete forgiveness by God was the same in both cases. If a worshiper who sinned in the Old Testament came with a contrite heart and offered a proper ritual sacrifice, he was forgiven for that sin. Now, back to the other aspects of blood guilt. I hope you're starting to get a little better picture of what blood means and what blood guilt amounts to and just how serious it is. When I conduct communion, those of you who have been present know that I always read a certain verse that Paul uttered in 1 Corinthians. And this verse deals with precisely what we've been talking about. Blood guilt. 1 Corinthians 11.27 says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Notice that a man will be guilty of the blood of Christ if he partakes in what we have come to call, given the name, communion, but he's unworthy of doing so. 
by my best understanding of what unworthy means in this context, I think it means to be either an unbeliever or someone who may profess to be a believer but has fallen so far away from unity with God that Christ's sacrifice may not even be efficacious for him anymore. Now there's one, but one single exception in all the scriptures that permits the symbolic drinking of blood, or for that matter, symbolic eating of human flesh. And it's what we call communion. Jesus' Passover time connection of drinking wine as symbolic of his blood has absolutely no parallel in the Bible. Wine in the Bible is always associated with joy, not blood. Real or symbolic drinking of blood for a Hebrew was so horrible and repulsive, I don't have the words to express it. And this revulsion at ingesting blood was ordered and cultivated by God. And it is explained in his many laws about blood, several of which we've discussed tonight. The gravity of this situation as concerns eating blood escapes the average Christian. There is a fascinating story in the Gospel of John that, that, that might now, since we've had this lesson, make a little more sense to you. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And we're going to read from verses 49 through 69. John chapter 6. And if you have a complete Jewish Bible, it'll start on page 1338, 1338. John 6, 49 to 69. I am the bread which is life. Your fathers ate the manna in the desert and they died. But the bread that comes down from heaven is such that a person may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Furthermore, the bread that I will give is my own flesh. I will give it for the life of the world. And at this, the Judeans disputed with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Yeshua said to them, Yes, indeed. I tell you that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you don't have life in yourselves. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I live in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live through the Father, so also whoever eats me will live through me. So this is the bread that has come down from heaven. It's not like the bread that the fathers ate. They're dead. But whoever eats this bread will live forever. He said these things as he was teaching in a synagogue near Kafar uh, Nachum, Capernaum. And on hearing this, many of his Talmudim, his disciples said, Oh, this is a hard word. Who can bear to hear it? But Yeshua, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Is this a trap for you? Suppose you were to see the Son of Man going back up to where he was before. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help. 
The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, yet some among you don't trust. For Jesus knew from the outset which ones wouldn't trust him, also which ones would betray him. And this, he said, is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has made it possible for him. From this time on, many of his disciples just turned back. They no longer traveled around with him. So Yeshua said to the twelve, Don't you want to leave too? Shimon Kepha, Simon Peter, answered him, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the word of eternal life. We have trusted. We know that you are the Holy One of God. And Yeshua answered them, Didn't I choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is an adversary. He was speaking of Yehuda ben Shimon from Kirot. For this man, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. In verse 61, after Yeshua has pronounced the absolute necessity of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he asks a rhetorical question as he watches many of his followers walk away from him in disgust, I might add. His question was, does this offend you? What this is he referring to? Of course, it was the message of eating uh, eating his blood that caused absolute revulsion among those who were even most dedicated to him. And then he goes on to say that these words are in spirit, indicating what we all inherently know, which is in no way was he speaking of a literal, physical, eating of flesh and drinking of blood, but it was symbolic of a spiritual decision for us to come into complete unity with him. Long after Christ was dead, Paul warns in 1 Corinthians that those who are unworthy shouldn't drink of Yeshua's blood, take communion, or else that person will bear blood guilt. And what was the penalty for blood guilt? If the perpetrator is known, his life must end. A central rule of blood in God's justice system is that when innocent blood is shed, the blood of the guilty is required as payment. No exceptions and no substitutions. And this required blood of the guilty is not blood of atonement. It's the blood of retribution. It's the blood of a debt owed to God. Now, I want to end this lesson by pointing out some additional principles of blood guilt. And the reason for my pointing this out is a challenge to us all. We live in a land that is so contaminated with blood guilt that our national future is completely predictable. Destruction right along with the rest of the world. How could we, a supposed Christian nation, merit blood guilt? Where does our blood guilt lie? In our refusal to take the life of murderers. And instead say, oh, it's better to jail them until they die at their end of a relatively normal lifespan. 
Much of the church, and frankly, much of Judaism, most of it, calls this humanitarian mercy. We recently had that horrific case of a non-repentant Muslim terrorist who planned and executed the bombing of the airplane that exploded over Lockerbie, Scotland a few years back, killing over 300 people. And he was set free from prison on humanitarian reasons. Not only was his life not taken for this massacre, he was set free merely because he was ill. Based on some macabre and secular humanistic philosophy of mercy and forgiveness. But God says such a thing is a refusal to obey his commandments. Murder brings blood guilt upon the land and the community, not just the criminal. And God says the only way for that blood guilt to be absolved is by means of taking the life of the murderer. That's it. That's God's law. You just read it. Our nation has refused to do this in many states now for decades. Even states that have the death penalty have found innumerable reasons to spare the life of premeditated murderers, serial killers. We all live today in a land soaked in blood guilt. It's on our shoulders. The Lord will act. Again, there's only one prescribed method. There's just one for dealing with blood guilt. Execute the perpetrator. Otherwise, the entire community bears the guilt. A question that any Christian who's been saved for even a short time should have by now asked him or herself is, why is the coming battle of Armageddon led by our Savior so bloody and without mercy? You find any mercy? In the war of Armageddon, when you read about it? You see, Armageddon is a holy war of complete and absolute annihilation. In many ways, it's very similar to Noah's flood, where the only people spared were those on that ark. The only survivors of the war of Armageddon in the entire world will be those who profess Yeshua before the battle starts. Those who try to convert during the battle are going to get the same treatment as those who don't. Destruction. Christ is called the blood avenger in the battle of Armageddon. Do you now understand what that term means? The Lord has declared the entire world capable, rather culpable, of blood guilt. We in this room are blood guilty because, among other things, we're part of a nation that doesn't doesn't prosecute abortion doctors, but it also makes it actually legal and pronounces it as as a good thing. We in this room are blood guilty because we have in our nation convicted murderers who are not having their lives taken to absolve our blood guilt 
And instead, they're simply serving long prison sentences. Therefore, since we won't do what's required to remove the blood guilt, the Lord is sending his blood avenger, Yeshua, to do what the law has always been. The blood of the guilty is required for spilling the blood of the innocent. And a community or a society that refuses to take God's justice upon the blood, blood guilt right, is guilty by membership, by association. You can't set yourself apart from it. Let me point out, this is not a call or an excuse for vigilantism. Okay. We have a justice system. We just need to work hard to change it. But it also points out one of the prime reasons we need to study the Word of God thoroughly and also rush to accept what Jesus Christ has done for us. Okay, Those of us who ought to bear the price of our blood guilt have had it paid for by Messiah. But that only applies to those who actually trust in who he is and what he has done. Now next week, we're going to continue in Deuteronomy 21 as it concerns families and the human spoils of holy war.